This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's poem. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod, all went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue deaf even to the hoots of the gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone was still yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If, in some smothering dreams, you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil's sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie. Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. End quote. Now, listener, as it has become our tradition around here, from time to time, I subject you to my amateurish attempts to examine a poem. And today is one of those days. The poem you just heard is called Dulce et decorum est, or sweet and proper, or fitting, it is which is a nod to the final line of the poem where the speaker references the line, Dulce et decorum est pro patria mori. Now that line is originally from the ancient Greek poet Horace's collection of poems called Odes, which was published in four volumes between 23 and 13 BCE. The line translated means how sweet and proper or fitting it is to die for your country. Some translations refer to the country as the fatherland or the land of our ancestors. And you probably recognize the word patria, from which we in English get the word patriot. And the poem under examination today was written by Wilfred Owen while he served in World War I. He was born on March 18, 1893, in Oswestry, Shropshire, England. He died November 4, 1918, at the Sombrewas Canal in France, at the age of 25. And he was killed in action during World War I, just seven days before the conclusion of the war which, for those who don't know, ended November 11th, 1918, a day we refer to now as Armistice Day. And his death was clearly a tragedy on many fronts, but thankfully for us, the haunting words of his poetry related to the war live on. And this poem is a tough one because, like most war poetry, it projects to us from across the gulf of both time and geography the true horrors of war. War is simply brutal. And the First World War arguably was one of the most brutal modern wars ever to be. 
In total, more than 17 million people would die as a result of it. And to put that in perspective for, for folks, that's enough to completely wipe out any one of all but four states in the United States. Enough to wipe out all of New England, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut. Enough to wipe out the 15 least populated states in their entirety. And most of us, myself included, can't even fathom that much death. And all of that death came in less than four years of time. And not to get any more graphic than necessary here, but we aren't talking about bullet-to-the-head quick deaths here, which are relatively, if not completely, painless, right? We're talking about some of the most horrific and unsettling of ways to die that you can imagine, and many that you probably can't. The speaker here, whom we already know is Owen himself, is referencing trench warfare. You see, in World War I, many new and horrific weapons were introduced to the battlefield. Automatic weapons capable of slinging thousands of rounds across wide open spaces. Tanks, which were designed to protect operators from just such weapons, though themselves often were just semi-mobile caskets. Chemical weapons, including mustard and chlorine gas, which we'll talk more about later. And obscenely large and long-range artillery capable of lobbing massive amounts of high explosives and shrapnel from miles behind the lines all conspired to create this hellscape that few, if any of us, can truly imagine. And that is the place from which Owen writes this poem, as well as others. So, before we begin a more formal-ish explication of the poem, I'll read it again for you. And afterwards, we'll use the same framework that we have in the past, one that I borrowed years ago from the UNC Chapel Hill Writing Center for how to conduct a poetry explication. For those new... And a refresher for those who've done this before with me, we'll look at six questions. One, what is being dramatized? Two, who is speaking? Three, what happens in the poem? Four, when does the action take place? Five, where is the speaker? And six, why does the speaker choose now to speak? So, as I read this, take particular notice of those questions, and also, I would ask, as a separate item, to notice the moments during the poem, where you are the most uncomfortable as a listener. So here we go. Dulce et decorum est by Wilfred Owen. Bent double like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep, many had lost their boots, but limped on, bloodshod. All went lame, all blind, Drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of gas shells dropping softly behind. Gas, gas! Quick, boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim through the misty panes and thick green lights, as under a green sea, I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, Choking. Drowning. If, in some smothering dreams, you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face, like a devil sick of sin. If you could hear, at every jolt, the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell, with such high zest, to children, 
ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie. Dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. End quote. So, in keeping with the Writing Center's guide, we'll first look at what is being dramatized in the poem. This is, as we know, World War I. The location, more accurately, could be in any trench along hundreds of miles of trenches on either side of the conflict. And you've likely seen trenches like this in documentaries or Hollywood films. The recent movie 1917 has some great examples of these. They were constructed to be deliberately nonlinear, meaning they didn't run in straight lines. They had dog legs and wound along the front to minimize both blast propagation from artillery or grenades and also to prevent enemy soldiers, should they reach your trench line, from simply firing straight down a long line of troops, what we in the military call enfilading fire. They were also the lowest points on the battlefield, as you would expect, so they collected rainwater, and they often flooded. And oh, by the way, blood and vomit and whatever human fluids happened to be present mixed with that to create the sludge that Owen references in the early part of this poem. And that most foul mix of the worst soup of suffering, it was indeed. And he notes being bent double and refers to sacks in reference to their clothing. And remember that this is a four-year-long struggle where the front lines moved very little, if at all, during this long stalemate. Much time was spent by the soldiers in these trenches shivering on the line in wet conditions and all types of weather, waiting to fight and to die. And even the word dramatized, in this sense, might be the wrong word. This is not a dramatization. This is real. This is even perhaps under-dramatized when you consider the gravity of this entire conflict. And the opening stanza closes with reference to, quote, gas shells dropping softly behind, end quote, which follows the, quote, haunting flares which preceded them. And this is a reference to the tactics of the day, still a common tactic to today, which is flares are fired into the sky and they descend slowly, usually with their descent retarded by parachutes as they burn, right? And that illuminates an area of ground below them. And this allowed for more accurate targeting of follow-on rounds. So artillery gunners and spotters are blind in the dark, just like the rest of us. But what they'll do is they'll fire a shell which lights up a portion of the ground and the spotters will give a more accurate range and location for specific targets that they want to hit. And then following those rounds will be the explosive or the shrapnel shells, or in this case, a gas shell. So now that you have a little bit better understanding of the tactics of the day and kind of where this is taking place, let's look at who is speaking. And we know the speaker here is Owen, as he's the author and was actually present at the time that this was taking place. But this sequence of events, as he describes it, played out countless times over the course of the war, again, on both sides. It could quite literally have been any soldier, day or night, for four years straight. Third, what happens in the poem? Now, we know from having heard this twice now that the speaker paints a terrifying scene, one of a gas attack, most likely mustard gas, in, into the trenches. For those that don't know, mustard gas, or sulfur mustard, is, more accurately, a vapor. And it is what we would refer to as a blister agent. It attacks exposed skin and causes persistent blisters, attacking most aggressively mucous membranes such as the eyes, mouth, and lungs. 
and the substance was particularly well suited for trench warfare because it could be fired from a distance, over the heads of friendly forces, and then carried by the prevailing breeze over the enemy trenches. Meaning, if you wanted it to descend into the enemy trenches, you would fire, and the wind was blowing in the direction of the enemy trenches, you would fire the rounds so they landed between your troops and the enemy troops, and then let the wind carry the gas as it billows from the canisters towards the enemy lines. If the wind was blowing towards you, you would fire it beyond the enemy trenches so that the wind would blow it back towards the enemy trenches. And it being heavier than air, once it found itself over an empty space, would descend into that space. In this case, the trenches that we described earlier. And in this way, attackers could accurately target, with inaccurate weapons, a, quote, protected enemy, largely without endangering themselves. However... When the wind shifted unexpectedly, the results could be absolutely catastrophic. Imagine that the wind shifts and you expect it to blow away from you and now it blows towards you and now you have gassed your own soldiers. So a gas attack is announced by the line, gas, gas, quick boys, which sends every soldier scrambling to don their gas masks, which they always carry. And those are those horrific looking gas masks with the two round glass lenses, those quote misty panes and thick green light and the vacuum cleaner looking hose that extends out of the front of them. They require an airtight seal, which can be compromised for any number of reasons, whether it's broken glass, a tear in the material, poor upkeep, broken straps, or even excess facial hair, which, for those that don't know, is actually why many of the military grooming standards that exist exist today. It's to make sure that gas masks fit in the event that they're ever needed. And they're as uncomfortable as you'd imagine claustrophobia, limited vision, hot and smelly, just all around absolutely horrific. But far less uncomfortable were the wearers than those who were too late or found their masks missing from their sides or damaged. The speaker describes a horrible scene where men in absolute and understandable panic come to the realization that they're about to become a statistic as they begin to struggle to breathe. The speaker describes yelling out, stumbling, floundering like a man in fire or lime, guttering, choking, drowning. Again, absolutely horrific. And if I were a betting man, I'd guess that those descriptions are where you felt most uncomfortable when I read this. And you'd be right to feel that way. They are some of our worst fears. And it's worth noting that as mustard gas attacks the lungs into which it was inhaled, blisters form, robbing the man of precious air needed to function. And drowning really is the right term, and it's a term he uses twice in the poem. And he's trying to make a point here. He's trying to tell people not at the front of what it's like to actually be at the front. People who are describing as you would expect, or as you often see to children, that the people who fight wars are heroic and that it is it is noble, or as the poem's title and says, right and proper, to die for one's country. And the speaker then goes on to describe the man being taken from the battlefield, still alive, tossed onto a cart, but likely not alive for very long. And almost certainly, a few minutes later, the all-clear would be given, the winds would take the remaining gas and dissipate it into the air, and the speaker and those who lived would await the next frightful encounter. So the next question that we're asked is, when does the action take place? Again, 
this likely takes place anywhere along the front during any part of World War I on either side, but in this case, most likely the Allied trenches. And where is the speaker? Of course, the speaker is there amidst it all. The speaker is a first-hand witness to this as they're describing it. And the last question, and I think this is the most important one for this particular poem, is why does the speaker choose now to speak? And while it's difficult to say, but I would guess, as with many war poets, that writing poetry is cathartic in its own way. It's a way to cope with the trauma of war. It provided an outlet for what otherwise might be too difficult to speak or write. It was, for Owen at least, an acknowledgement of others' mortality, and likely his own, a fate he would meet not long after he wrote this poem. And in describing it, I would guess also that Owen is attempting to educate those who would paint a wonderful picture in their minds of what warfare on the front lines of World War I was like. That to go into battle carrying or wearing the flag of your country was the most noble pursuit that any man could have, and that it was right and proper to die for one's country. And the last four lines bear repeating once more, just because they really illustrate, I think, what Owen's intentions were behind the, as we now know, tongue-in-cheek title of the poem. So the last four lines, again, are, My friend, you would not tell, with such high zest, to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce et decorum est, pro patria mori. Essentially, the speaker is saying, you wouldn't say it was fitting or proper or even remotely sweet to die for your country if you knew what it was like here. As Owen refers to it, it is all an old lie. And that is today's poem. Difficult? Yes. Painful? Absolutely. But also thought-provoking and necessary, lest we forget. This is playing out before our very eyes. We see as Russia has invaded Ukraine and the Ukrainian soldiers fight for their country. We see through social media and through the news what look to be these noble, amazing, wonderful, proud Ukrainians fighting to defend their nation. And there's a sense of amazement and a sense of respect and a sense of beauty that we place upon them like a like a laurel wreath around their around their necks but i suspect that the ways that many of those ukrainian soldiers have died is not sweet or right or proper so before we paint this rosy picture of noble deaths to defend one's homeland Let's remember that these are real people fighting and dying in a war that they didn't want, a war they didn't invite, and that there's nothing sweet or right about it. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at QuotationsPod. Send me an email to QuotationsPod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at QuotationsPod. Or join the conversation on Facebook at QuotationsPod. 
I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.